pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for this day. Such beautiful children, such a sign of your continued favor towards us, towards these parents, towards these families, and towards us as a community that you have placed these lives here. Lord, I pray we'll be faithful. But Lord, now we turn our minds to your word and to a power that you have given that can help us be faithful as parents, as believers. Lord, help us open our minds to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Anyone who is at all familiar with the Bible and the history of the early Christian church knows well this story that is related in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But how did the disciples get to that day? Did it just sort of happen out of the blue? And why was the Holy Spirit poured out upon them? What was the purpose? We're starting today our fall series entitled Fresh Wind. Now normally we start our fall series earlier in September or even the end of August, but we've got a lot of things going on this year, so we really didn't get a chance to start it until now. Uh, Pastor Bernie is also preaching on these same passages each Sabbath, so I want to encourage you, go onto our website or, or whatever means you can or have, you can go onto Roku or whatever it is, and listen to his messages as well, because it will give you a fuller picture of what we're talking about. This series is going to run for six weeks, and it'll wrap up with Festival Sabbath on November 18. And by the way, just an aside on that, third service, you know, you usually get the treats and the special things. But isn't it interesting that in a couple weeks on the 28th, here's this gospel choir coming, but it's not coming to third, it's coming to first service. So if you all need some uh, advice on what time to set your alarm in order to make it to first service, I'd be glad to give you that. But you may very well want to be at first service on the 28th uh, to hear that group that is going to sing for us. This is a really neat thing, so look for that. Anyway, Festival Sabbath, November 18. We will be for this series, this Fresh Wind series, considering various stories from the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is poured out and looking at the impact that that has on the individuals upon whom the Spirit comes. What those people become after the Spirit is poured out. And so in order to get things rolling, we're starting in Acts 2, or actually more accurately, we'll be ending today in Acts 2, because in truth, I believe the events in Acts 2 were as much a culmination of what had gone before as they were a beginning of what would come next. So it says, on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in the room. And the question I want to start with today and reflect on as we go along is, who was in the room? Acts 2 just calls them they. 
In order to answer this question, we actually need to go back to Acts chapter 1 and to understand the answer, we've got to start at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 where we find these words in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that God began to do and teach, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, there's a great deal that's communicated to us in these first few words of the book of Acts, and we need to make sure we understand what's being said. One of the things that happens here is that the author of the book of Acts references another book. He says, in my previous book, Theophilus, I talked about this. Who is it that's writing this book? Well, it's actually pretty easy. You go back to the Gospel of Luke, and you will find language that's very similar. So let's go there for just a minute. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, this is written to the same person, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the understanding is, and it's pretty much unchallenged anywhere, that the author of Luke and Acts is a man by the name of Luke. Now, an interesting point about this Luke, he was not an eyewitness of the events of Jesus' life. He was not there when it happened. So how did he write his gospel? Well, he tells us there. I went around and I interviewed. He's an investigative reporter. And the account he's giving us is one he got by going to the sources and getting the story. Now, another interesting fact about Luke, it is highly likely he was a Gentile, which would make him the only non-Israelite author in all of the Bible. But this book of Acts, unlike Luke's first work, where his purpose was to tell the story of Jesus, that's what the book of Luke does, tells the story of Jesus. In Acts, his second book, Luke is telling the story of what happened after Jesus was here, what the disciples did, where Paul came from, and how the church got going. But I don't want us to lose track of the question we're trying to answer, even if we need these details to give us our answer. Acts 2 tells us when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Who is they? Who was in that room? Let's go back to Acts 1 and to the events that occurred just after Jesus was raised to life again. So verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. What a strange time this must have been for the disciples and the others with them. 
And just to give you a feel for what a strange time this must have been, did you notice the language in verse 3? Referring to Jesus, it says, He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Why did he do that? Well, it's actually very simple. He had to keep doing that because it was really hard for the disciples to believe he was alive. We're kind of used to the idea that that Jesus died and, and rose again, but if you'd been there when it happened, it was pretty hard to believe. We go back to Luke chapter 24, and this is the morning of the resurrection, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Why were the women taking spices to the tomb? Well, because in the burial custom of the time, you buried the dead with certain spices wrapped in the wrapping with them, and they had not had enough time when Jesus died on Friday evening to get it all done because the hours of Sabbath were coming. So they went early in the morning. Now, when those women went to the tomb, there were two things they were expecting. They were expecting to find Jesus there, and they were expecting to find Jesus dead. That was their expectation. So that's what they expected when they went. That's why they had the spices. Verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. It's not the twelve anymore. To the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna... Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Now, I want you to notice very closely this verse 11. And when the disciples heard the women, they immediately believed and praised God, because this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Is that what verse 11 says? No. Verse 11 says, but the disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Nobody was expecting Jesus to be raised. We're trying to answer the question, who was in the room on the day of Pentecost? And in our effort to do so, we've encountered the question, why in the world would Jesus spend 40 days after the resurrection with them coming and going? And in this passage we just read, we have learned a couple things that might become relevant later. There weren't 12 disciples anymore. Now there were 11. Judas was gone. And there were some women involved. Specifically mentioned are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some others not specifically named. But we've also learned something else from these verses. It was really hard for the disciples to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. 
And because it was so hard, an encounter would take place later that day where Jesus, somehow unrecognizable, would come up to two of them, not disciples technically, but two followers of Jesus as they journeyed on the way to the town of Emmaus. And after interacting with them, Jesus would say this to these two. Luke 24, verse 25, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? The point is this, when our minds are so set on we know what's gonna happen, when something else comes along, it's like we can't even conceive it. Jesus would appear again a little later that day, this time not just to the two who were on the road, but those two would go back to Jerusalem and tell their story. And then Jesus would appear with all the group, including the 11, Luke 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, the experience of the two on the road, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And now verse 45, catch these words. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And I want to just break in right here for a second because I believe this verse 45 is very closely tied with Acts chapter 2 and what was taking place there on the day of Pentecost. You see, all their lives they'd had the law of Moses, they'd had the prophets, they'd had the Psalms, but not just their lives, for generation after generation before them they had had all these things. Yet even for the disciples, the deep truths and the words that pointed to Jesus, pointed to his work, to his crucifixion, and to his resurrection, these deep truths were still a mystery to the eleven, even after they'd spent three and a half years with Jesus. They still didn't understand. Even they needed help in order to understand and believe. So I want to say this as an encouragement to you. Don't feel so bad next time you have trouble understanding and believing. You're not the first one. But don't give up. Pray that Jesus will open your mind to understand the Scriptures just like he had to do for the disciples. Luke 24, verse 45 then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. Now I want you to just stop for a second and think about this. This is Jesus giving us a synopsis 
of the essence of Scripture. That's pretty important, right? So what is the essence of Scripture? This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now I want to ask you, is there any single succinct place in the Old Testament where it distinctly in those words says, the Messiah will suffer and die, and repentance and forgiveness will be preached to the nations beginning in Jerusalem? No. But that's what it means. That's the larger point. And the challenge to us then becomes that God would speak to us in a way as we interact with his word that we will understand the most important points and not get ourselves caught in details that are not as important as the most important point. It's quite an amazing passage. Verse 46 and 47 are Jesus summarizing the Scriptures and what they ultimately teach. Verse 46, it's about the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins to make a way for us to be saved. In verse 47, that all the world will be taught this story through preaching, and the preaching of this word will result in repentance by the people of the nations and the forgiveness of their sins through the blood of Jesus. It kind of reminds me of another passage, another time, where Jesus kind of pulls it all together. Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's what the Bible's teaching us. But Luke doesn't end with Jesus' comments there. He quotes Jesus adding an additional piece. So let's go back. Luke 24, verse 46 He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now here's what he adds, verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Perhaps all the details of what is to come are not yet completely clear. But in these words of Jesus, the disciples are now beginning to get a peek into what the future will hold for them. They are the witnesses. Therefore, they will be the ones who tell the story, who preach the gospel to the nations. It's all a very big reality. And in truth, they are woefully unprepared. And Jesus knows that, so he adds these words, verse 49. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So we began trying to answer the question of who it was that was gathered in the room on the day of Pentecost. And in trying to do so, we've learned a few things, including why this group of Jesus' followers was in Jerusalem that day. You see, Jesus told them to be there. He said, wait in the city until what the Father has promised has come. Something that when it came would clothe the disciples with power from on high. So now we go back to Acts chapter 1. 
We're continuing to try to understand who was in the room that day in Acts 2. Earlier in Acts 1, we read these words. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Why did Jesus give, spend 40 days giving convincing proofs that he was alive? Well, we just read about that. It was because it was so hard to believe he could be alive. It took a long time to process that. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So now we're ready to go on because we're about to get some more details regarding why they were to wait in the city. Verse 4, on one occasion while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is essentially the same message Jesus was giving in Luke 24. But in this case, now we have added to it the detail that the gift they are to receive could also be referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And apparently it's very important for them to receive it if they are ever to play their role as witnesses and preachers of the gospel. Verse 6, then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the, dates, the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive what? Power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So we're trying to figure out who was in the room that morning of Pentecost. And each verse we read not only reveals who was there, but also important information about the ones who were there but also about who wasn't there. But before we get to that, notice that even now, after Jesus has been with them off and on for 40 days since the resurrection, these followers are still kind of confused about what's going to happen next. Did you notice they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still trying to understand. And essentially, Jesus says, well, yes, but not exactly the way you were expecting. You see, the disciples still needed to have their minds opened. But now I want you to clearly understand verse 8, for it is a remarkable passage that beautifully explains what's about to happen in Acts chapter 2, as well as the why behind it. Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Three points. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Second, that power will make you my witnesses. And third, in that power, you will carry the gospel to the world. So, major point in all of this. You can literally be an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
But even if you know the story of Jesus perfectly, you will not be effective telling it to the world until the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Ellen White comments to this end in the book Acts of the Apostles, the Savior knew that no argument, however logical, would melt hard hearts or break through the crust of worldliness and selfishness. He knew that his disciples must receive the heavenly endowment, that the gospel would be effective only as it was proclaimed by hearts made warm and lips made eloquent by a living knowledge of him who is the way, the truth, and the life. The work committed to the disciples would require great efficiency, for the tide of evil ran deep and strong against them. A vigilant, determined leader was in command of the forces of darkness, and the followers of Christ could battle for the right only through the help that God, by His Spirit, would give them. Back to to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And now, finally, after all this time, we're about to find the answer to our initial question, who was in the room that day? Verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. How many was that? That was 11. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Oh, but wait a minute along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So who was there? It was the eleven plus the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers, as well as a few more that don't get mentioned here originally, but they get mentioned further on. Uh, for example, Joseph, Barsabbas, and Matthias. Their names are going to show up a little further down. So it's the 11, it's the women, and it's a few others. It's the faithful remnant. In all, Acts 1, and in this section we'll say there's about 120 of them total. I doubt they were all crammed into that room at the same time, but, but it's not a big group. There were some significant absences that day. All the other times that group had gathered together, it had been because Jesus was physically there in the flesh, right? But that day in Acts 2, Jesus wasn't there like they'd been used to him being there, was he? And Judas wasn't there. He was gone. And I don't know if you noticed in that list, there weren't really any of the leaders of the Jews or the Romans there, just the 11 and the women and a few others. Uh, Just between us, not a very impressive group by human standards. Not much they're likely going to do on their own, right? 
But you see, that's the point of Acts 2. The remnant group of Jesus' followers might not have been very impressive on their own, but did you notice what they were doing as they were gathered together? Acts 1, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. No more silly arguments about who was going to sit at the right and left of Jesus. No more squabbling over who was the greatest. No more unwillingness to be seen as a servant. Now just a group of believers, a group of friends of Jesus who didn't know what exactly the future held for them, only that Jesus had told them they would be his witnesses in the world. They'd been told to go to Jerusalem and wait for power. And even though they didn't know what the arrival of power would, would look like, still they did as Jesus told them to do. They waited in Jerusalem and they prayed. Now you know when you're at church, there's a lot of things to do, right? we got to get out and do this. We need to get out and do that. We need to get out and do the other thing. Who's got time to waste praying? How often do churches that mean to do well and mean to accomplish God's purpose do everything except the most important thing? We gather for a lot of things. How often do we gather to pray? Oh, we pray when we gather. But how often is the purpose of the gathering prayer? Oh, we don't really have time for that. We've got things to do for the Lord. And then it happened. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And what were they saying? Well, here's a portion of Peter's words. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What is Peter saying? Peter is relating the gospel. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Power will come on you and you will tell the gospel story. What's the gospel story? The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and forgiveness through faith in his name. Here is Peter doing exactly what Jesus said. Peter goes on, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, 
and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And in the presence of the Spirit being poured out, now conviction is falling on the hearts of those who hear. And when conviction had fallen on the people, as a result of the disciples' words, they asked, brothers, what shall we do? To which Peter would reply, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And that is exactly what happened and exactly what is still happening today, or at least exactly what is supposed to still be happening today. Here's the key points I want you to take home. Jesus promised when he returned to the Father that he would send the Holy Spirit. And once the Holy Spirit came, the believers would receive power. But power for what purpose? Is the Holy Spirit a game? Is the Holy Spirit a toy, a, a little trinket, something to amuse us and keep us quiet until Jesus comes again? Sort of like maybe a, a child with a Sabbath toy who's waiting for the preacher to finally quit talking. Don't worry, we're almost done. Is the Holy Spirit just a little, a little thing God gave us to keep us quiet until Jesus comes again? A little fun Did Jesus send the Holy Spirit just to give us a private thrill every now and then if worship is really good? Or was there supposed to be something more? Is it just an emotion? Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's clear to see from the story in Acts 2 what happened to the disciples and the women and those who were with them and what they became when the Holy Spirit descended upon them in power the first time. They became witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the call to the nations to come to faith and receive the Spirit as well. That's what happened when the Spirit fell on them the first time. And we'll be spending the next five Sabbaths considering additional stories of what other believers became when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. But the real question I want you to be asking yourself each week is this, what would I become if the Holy Spirit fell upon me? Now, you see, we're different than them because, you see, they were fairly insignificant. 
There was just a little group. Even if you count 120 of them, that's less than this section of the church. And they weren't as important as we are. They didn't have really good jobs. They didn't run big organizations. They didn't do important things like us. So maybe it was a little easier for them to realize how badly they needed the Spirit in order to do what God had appointed them to do. And could it be that at times we've become a little too wise in our own eyes, a little too strong in our arm of flesh, not ready to believe that it's only by the Spirit of God that the kingdom of God can be built. What would I become if the Holy Spirit fell on me? Think it can happen? Did you misunderstand the verse I read? Verse 38, Acts 2, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But it doesn't stop there, does it? and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, maybe that was just for them. No, keep reading. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Does the promise to send the Holy Spirit still stand today? Yes, it does. What would become of us? We see what became of them when the Holy Spirit fell on them. What would become of us if we all received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do you know? Do you want to know? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have tasted of the fruit of the blessing you long to bestow. But Lord, I think we've come short of the fullness. And I don't know all the reasons. And so I'm praying, Lord Jesus, open our minds to understand and move upon our hearts to pray that we might also receive the Holy Spirit, that we would be your witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.